0: We are in the book of Ephesians in chapter 17, and we're jumping into the a little bit of a, of a context here, again, of how Christ has made peace between Jews and Gentiles, which might sound like an odd place to start a message where we're talking about Jewish people and Gentile people, um, but w- we need to, and it's because the Bible uh, sets up this paradigm of of the Jews who received the word of God and the promise of God, and these, uh, the Gentiles, the rest of the world, who seemed so far off, and yet they had this one thing in common, that they need forgiveness, that they need a Savior, that they need a relationship to God. And we see that God makes that possible. The Jews, even with all the benefits and advantages they have, they still crucified their Savior. The Gentiles, in their own way, with a conscience and the law in their own heart, knowing that there is something more to this life, um, also need to be reconciled to God through, through the forgiveness of sin. And so, in a way, there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles because ultimately all of us made in the image of God have fallen short of His holiness and His righteous standard. And so all of us need to find peace with Him by one universal way, which is through belief in the blood of Christ, which the kids uh, so articulated so well this morning. Now, with that peace comes a certain unity. And when there is a true peace with God, we can experience a true peace with each other. This is something that the Holy Spirit does, as we'll see in just a moment. But we begin picking up with this context in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. Far and near are just references to the previous passages, uh, speaking of Gentiles, again being sort of far off into the geographically into the uttermost parts of the world, um, but also being far off in that they didn't have that unique relationship to God and that um, that, that history of being a chosen people that were supposed to exemplify him. The Jews were those who were near, and again, in the sense of having this long history, having received the law of God and being expected to uh, be a light on a hill, to represent the kingdom of God on earth. And yet both parties needed peace, as we said. Both parties, though one seemed to be at the very doorstep of heaven, couldn't be further away. The Jewish people time and again in the Old Testament were so far in their hearts from God. And yet there are times even in the Old Testament where a Gentile, someone who seemed distant, would be brought in. So we see this example throughout that there is this one universal problem and this one universal peace. Now there is... A question here, if you think about it. Jesus came to bring peace to Jews and Gentiles. That's what it says. He came. But then it says he preached peace. When did he preach this peace to everyone? Jesus' ministry, if you look at the Gospels, was primarily to Jewish people. There's no real record of him preaching to groups of Gentiles. He did talk with, heal individuals. But uh, there's no record of him preaching To all of the Gentiles and these great crowds, as it seems like uh, Paul is insinuating here in Ephesians. In fact, you have passages like Matthew 15, 24. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 15, 24, um, he tells a Canaanite woman that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, he does still end up ministering to this Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman was not just a, a Gentile, but in fact, a historical enemy of the Jewish people. And yet he, he, he says that, I'll send only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he still serves and ministers to her. Similarly, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, when Jesus commissioned the 12 disciples to go out and preach, he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So very much seems like when you look at The Gospels, when you look at the ministry of Jesus and his disciples, very Jewish focused, not Gentile focused. And so, Paul, what do you mean by he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, if that means Gentiles and Jews? When did he do that? Well, Matthew chapter 28 is a very familiar passage. It's often called the Great Commission. And in Matthew 28, he commanded his disciples, just as we talked about with the kids. It's interesting how those things work out. Um, he says to them, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there is a mention of the nations or the Gentiles, but who is to do the preaching, the going, the teaching? It is the disciples. Similarly, in Acts chapter. One, this is just prior to the ascension. Again, interesting, it wasn't planned that way, of course, to have the catechism question be just these subjects. But Acts chapter 1, verse 8, <clears throat> Jesus tells his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All right. Some translation, the uttermost parts of the earth. I like that phrasing. In other words, those who are very far off, you need to go and you need to be a witness. You need to teach them. You need to talk to them. You need to proclaim good news to them of the gospel. Jesus certainly knew that his death on the cross was for the forgiveness of sins for people from every tribe, every nation, even to the uttermost parts of the world. So when he preached, yes, you could say when you read the Gospels, he's preaching to crowds of Jewish people, but yet he was preaching to a wider audience. Even if the original listeners of his literal words at that time in the Sermon on the Mount or any of these other great um, teaching times of Jesus, even if the original listeners were almost exclusively Jewish, still... He had a wider audience in mind. I mean, think about it. 2,000 years later, 6,000 miles away, and the message of the gospel and of Jesus Christ is still being preached here in this room. Only now, the mouthpiece of God, the way this message is proclaimed, is through his disciples, through Christians, those who have peace with each other and peace with God through Jesus so yes, he came and he did preach, in a sense, to everybody. His words were applicable to everyone on the face of the planet. We're repeating them even now. And yet the mouthpiece is us, those who believe in him. Now, when you look at all these verses in the end of Ephesians 2 here, they have this breath of unity, just wafting through them. This idea that peace Between people and peace with God, it creates a a union that transcends time and space. We are united to a Christ who lived 2,000 years ago and ministered 6,000 miles away. At the same time, we, we share a connection and a unity with those who first heard the word of God, saw Jesus preach and teach. We have a unity with those who then were ministered to by the apostles and by Paul, so we have a connection to those believers. And from that time till now, the thing that is uniting us all together, and this is just the, one of the themes of the Bible, really, but certainly this passage, <clears throat> is that through Christ, we have this union and this, therefore, peace with each other. And so, in a way, I, I forget this sometimes. I, I mean, I, I neglect this. To think that when we are going to preach the gospel, we're bringing a message of peace and a unity between us and and between all sinners who have put faith in Jesus. We'll elaborate on that in just a minute, but I, I think for an application, we need to consider if that is what our gospel produces, if that is how we think of the gospel as a message of peace, or is it just. And I can get this way, too. Or is it just a track, you know, that I talk to people like a track? I mean, a track is a track. It's unchangeable. It's a, you know, you give it to someone, it says what it says. It's not going to ever say anything different, of course. But me as a person, embodying the peace that God has created between me and others and me and God, am I thinking of the gospel as a thing that produces that unity, as the thing that produces that bond between others. Because when I look in the world, I see a lot of disunity. I see a lot of hostility. I see a lot of uh, anger and and vitriol. And I have a gospel that can bring people together. And am I even thinking of the gospel that way? Or am I thinking of the gospel as something that uh, necessarily pushes people away and divides? That's not a right view of the gospel. Right view of the gospel is one that creates unity and peace and wholeness. Paul continues, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul says, we, we have access. Both have access in one spirit. Um, Meaning himself as a Jew and the Ephesians as mainly Gentiles. He's saying, we all have equal access, equal opportunity before the Father. Paul does this a lot when he makes it clear that he's just like everyone else, saved by grace through faith. Whenever he says we, he's just saying, I am just like you. Now here the emphasis is, Ephesians, you could be as Gentile as Gentile gets, and Paul has said in other places like Philippians, I am as Jewish as Jewish gets, but we are United in the fact that we can only have access to God through this one way, through Jesus Christ. And it's by faith, and it doesn't matter who you were, who he was. It doesn't matter that he assisted, that Paul assisted in the murder of Christians. He's still saved by the blood of Jesus, just like anyone else. It doesn't matter that he was an apostle, specially commissioned by Jesus himself to plant churches, to write Holy Scripture and build up the body. He's still a sinner, saved by grace through faith, just like anyone else. So when he says, we both have axes, it's not just a, a small thing that he's saying there. He, he's saying he's reducing everything down to this one thing, again, that makes peace between all kinds of people. Jew, Gentile, worst of criminals, <laughs> as Uriah said, uh, to those who seem like they are the holiest among men. And yet, we all. Have but one way to the Father by grace through faith in Jesus. Now, this verse, if you notice, is just one of those times when Paul almost casually mentions the Trinity. He has a reference to through Him, meaning Jesus, and then the Spirit, the second or third person of the Trinity, gives access to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And so, here, just in an almost casual way, Paul brings to mind. The way the Trinity works in salvation. And to be honest, Paul generally talks about God assuming a Trinitarian understanding. He doesn't really argue for it or even sometimes explain it. (laughs) He just talks in a way like he takes it for granted, which can frustrate theologians, which can seem to delight critics of Christianity because they, oh, see, the Bible nowhere says. Trinity, it never like gives you a doctrinal statement about Trinity. But I think it's even I think it's even a worse case for those who might be critics of the Bible if Paul just casually assumes that you would kind of believe this and, and follow this. Like someone that doesn't bother with introductions because you're already familiar with the person. Like, oh, you know Jesus, you know the Holy Spirit, you know the Father, who they are, what they do. Let's move on to business. It's not like he bothers to to say, you know, who is the Father, who is the Son, who is the Spirit, um, as if you don't know who they are. He just sort of assumes it, and let's get on to the next thing. Now, just to address it, just from an an apologetic standpoint, I don't know where everyone is at uh, in their knowledge of the Trinity, but uh, the word Trinity, like I said, is not mentioned in the Bible by word, but that many words that theologians and churches have come up with... um, are not in the Bible, but they're just being used to capture certain ideas and concepts. So the word is just a simple way to express a bigger thought. And this is the thought. The Bible presents God as revealing himself in three distinct persons who all possess the quality and attributes of divinity. I feel like every time I talk about the Trinity, I come up with another definition— I don't take it from a systematic theology or a book, maybe I should, but I, I almost just try to think of how would I t- articulate this almost every time I write a sermon. So you might think at this point I should just have a stock definition I slap in there, but I don't. I think through it again, like, okay, if I had explained this to someone, what would I say this time? Um, so that's, that's what I came up with. Or another way, um, three distinct persons who operate in distinct ways from each other, yet all meet a single definition of God. There's a trinity. Now, I could say all of that every single time instead of use the word trinity, but it's just easier to use one word. That's why theologians come up with words to kind of embody a category. There's nothing deceitful about that. There's nothing gotcha about that. Aha, the Bible doesn't say the word trinity, so it must not be trinitarian God. Well, we're just you know, if every time we have to say, you know, um, the Bible presents God as revealing himself, three distinct persons who all possess the qualities and attributes of deity, um, that becomes a mouthful. So I just say Trinity. That's what we mean by it. That's the way that Paul understands it, almost casually, like he does here. Now, having said all that, (laughs) so everyone's clear on the Trinity, right? Uh, (laughs) No, it's okay if it's still a little bit of a big concept. Uh, It is for me, too, but... And if you want to discuss that more, we can later. Having said all that, notice that while Paul made very great pains to say that Jesus' blood is what brings unity and peace between people and between us and God, Paul just as quickly says that we have access to the Father through the Spirit. In other words... There is, in Paul's mind, again, just kind of a casual thing where we can be talking about the blood of Jesus. It's the only way that we can be with God, have our sins forgiven. Also, it's only the Spirit that gives us access to the Father. And while theologians are like, hold on, what does that mean? And, you know, write all this, you know, pages and write uh, dissertations on all of these things. Paul wasn't trying to write a seminarian or a seminary-level dissertation. It just, almost again, casual. You know, the spirit gives us access. Well, Paul, you just said that we've been brought near by the blood. You made a very big deal about uh, the blood of Christ and his flesh is broken down, the wall of hostility and the cross and all these things. And now you're just going to say, you know, it's a spirit (laughs) that gives access. Well, which is it? You know, is it the blood of Jesus? Is it the Holy Spirit? Well, of course it's both because the Trinitarian God is necessarily involved in anything that God does. So each member of the Trinity is involved in anything that God does, because each member, each person of the Godhead is God. I mean, yeah, of course, duh. That's the way Paul treats most of these um, issues. He can just casually say, take for granted that the Holy Spirit, of course, is the one Jesus' blood paid for your sins. Also, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, um, in a way, applies these things. This is a God process, and all of the persons of the Godhead must be involved, necessarily. So it must be a Trinitarian process. Now, many passages, many, many passages we could use to refer to the Holy Spirit's work. I almost went on a whole tangent just on the holy spirit's work, but I will spare you a little bit of that, and part of um, part of sermonizing and and homiletics is knowing what rabbit trails to follow and which ones not to um, understand what the people uh, need to hear, but also to uh, not lose focus on the passage you 're in so i, I won 't go too far off um, here, but in in general, in general, when you become a Christian, all right, you, you put faith in Jesus. Someone told you that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins and rose again, and you say, "Yeah, I, I can't imagine having to stand before God and not having any defense or s- trying to s- argue with Him about, you know, my good works actually outweigh my bad works, and and having that kind of debate with Him, you know, it makes sense that I can only be perfect if a perfect God has substituted." His perfection for my imperfection. That a perfect, holy, loving God would forgive my sins at the cost and sacrifice of Himself. Makes sense. I believe that when you become a Christian through faith in that, the Spirit, or in the blood of Christ, the Spirit unifies us to Jesus. All right? It's the the third person of the Trinity that unites us to Him, and it unites us to Him by dwelling us. So God the Father is the transcendent God, just like bigger than the biggest thought you ever had in your life. Jesus the Son is somehow that very near God who became a man, took on flesh, dwelt in this creation like us, experienced life like us. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the, is the God that dwells in us. So that you have the God everywhere, you know, in that kind of very big transcendent way. You have the personal, imminent Jesus who dwelt in human flesh, and then you have the Holy Spirit that actually lives inside of you. That, um, that third person of the Spirit, it's, his job is to unite us to Christ, meaning that your life looks like Jesus. Your mission is the mission of Jesus. Your satisfaction, your hope is in Jesus. Your purpose is found in Jesus. Your identity is in Jesus. That's what it means to be united to him. It's that you you truly become like Christ. And you can't do that on your own. It it needs the work of God to do it. So that is the Holy Spirit's work in your life, constantly um, teaching you, showing you, um, who God is, changing your heart, changing your perspective so that you grow more and more into the likeness of Christ. It's a personal, intimate work. And God can only accomplish it by being in us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, generally speaking. And one of the implications of that, and we're going to see that more in Ephesians chapter 4, is again in this idea of unity. The closer that we get to Jesus... Each of us individually, the closer we will get to each other, because we are all drawing towards the same goal, the same designs, the same purposes. Peace with each other and with God produces true unity. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called So, if indeed the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can produce unity amongst all of the hostile you know, groups and peoples in the world, what the Bible is also saying, the way it creates peace with me and with people who think completely different than me and look completely different than me is in the Holy Spirit conforming me personally To this image of Christ, and also you and everyone else, no matter the background, no matter the history, no matter uh, who their parents were, no matter their social status, no matter their economic status, we are being drawn to the same image of Christ. That is the hope for unity and peace, is that the Holy Spirit would draw us all to a single Identity in Jesus Christ. Not that we lose our individuality, we'll talk about that uh, in just a minute, but that we are all being brought together into a single image by the Holy Spirit. In other words, by God. The reverse implication of this is: you cannot create true peace apart from the blood of Christ, apart from the gospel, apart from being forgiven of your sins, and you cannot produce peace by forcing people to think the same way as you. That must be the Holy Spirit that draws us to this unified image. It must be a work of God to do it, not in me saying, listen, we're all going to start dressing the same. We're all going to start looking the same. You all need to do exactly what I tell you to do. That's how we're going to gain peace, or any person to say there or any church. It must be a work of the Holy Spirit. And so our job as pastors must be not to say, you know, if you really want to, to to be united in, in peace here, just listen to me, listen to what I'm telling you. It's to tell you what the Word of God said, because who wrote the Word of God? The Holy Spirit. So our trust is, if we preach to you that which the Holy Spirit wrote, the Holy Spirit in your heart, if you're a Christian, will be drawing you closer to the image of Christ. And in that, in doing that, preaching the Word of God, we will find true unity versus a forced unity, versus a a forced conformity, versus us trying to wedge you into a a mold. Oh, you're not as mature as you should be, and trying to say, look, if you just fake it, or if you just pretend like you're doing okay, just pretend like all the other Christians here, act like all the other Christians here, that we'll create peace and unity that way. Well, no, you individually, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, must become more like Christ. And my trust is, as you're doing that, so are others, and we're creating unity. I think it's ch- a challenging thought because it is very tempting to try and force conformity. Because that's what we do with kids oftentimes, and I, I know I use that analogy a lot. It's just you want them to act the right way. And if they can fake it in your eyes, then they must be good. They must be okay. They must be set up for success if we just conform them to what we think perfection or being a good child looks like. A lot of Asian households are guilty of this. But no, that's not how things run. It's when you individually, the Holy Spirit in your heart, are growing in your love for the Lord and the things of the Lord. And as we encourage each other there's a great quote uh, from Mark Dever in your bulletin that says, Churches don't need programs so much as they need cultures of discipling, cultures where each member prioritizes the spiritual health of others. That when we think of others before ourselves, that's a very godlike thing to do. And if we have that as a culture, we will grow in unity and peace with each other. Now, there's often a lot of Different imagery that the writers of the New Testament use to describe how God's Spirit is uniting us to Jesus and to each other. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, even Ephesians 4, they both use the picture of a body to describe how we are being made into. Christ-likeness. So we are the body of Christ, and while we each have our different roles, just like we have different parts of our body, we're not just one kind of cell, we're all kinds of different cells and all kinds of different appendages and organs. So the body of Christ, though different in so many ways, still constitute one body. Of all the disparate parts that make up my body, I'm, it's still one body, it's still me. So in the same way, you Uh, You know the analogy, you know you might be a foot, you might be an eye, you might be a toe, you might be a kidney, but we are all one body of Christ united, and when everyone's functioning the way we should, that body is healthy and it grows. That's one image that's used, but Paul uses a different one in the book of Ephesians here, uh, at least in chapter 2. He uses the imagery of uh, a household. He says, for through him we have access in one spirit to the father verse 18 verse 19 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god strangers and aliens the closest analogy to these words that we have in english uh, is that a stranger is someone that is just temporarily visiting or just passing through And an alien is someone who has like legal residency or like a green card. That's how these words were were sort of used in the Greek culture. Neither of these categories would be considered as having all the rights and privileges of a citizen. Now, when it's when those descriptions are used of, of us, it's talking about being foreigners to the household and kingdom of God. As sinners, we aren't allowed to be citizens of heaven or have a place in his kingdom. If you ever traveled internationally you filled out a customs form and I always feel like like you know why can't I bring like an apple From New Zealand into America like what's the big deal or you know being a piece of celery or something like that, but it's really my own ignorance I don't know how dangerous it could be if I transport some fruit or vegetable that has a disease or like a pest on it that would be um, That our you know plants are not uh, ready for or immune to it could be disastrous and so customs very much cares what kind of apples and fruits and vegetables that you bring in from a foreign country Well, God's kingdom has no sin in it, only perfection. There's no exception to that policy. So even the smallest hint of sin cannot enter into the kingdom of God. God is perfectly holy. And while you might be able to skirt customs by keeping something in your sock or in your pocket or something under your hat, you cannot, you cannot um, get around. The customs you know, office of heaven. You can't get around God's all-knowing, all-scrutinizing eye. There's no one that's going to be able to fake their way into the kingdom of God. So our sins must be done away with completely, totally, in order to be a part of his kingdom. And through faith in Jesus, that's exactly what we have. And through the Holy Spirit's work, that's the kind of access that is made available to us. And when you become a Christian, you are then considered a fellow citizen of heaven along with the saints. The word saints literally means set-apart person or set-apart people. Um, it's another word for all folks throughout history who have put their trust in God. all the way to the time of Adam. It's not a special class of Christians, as in the Catholic Church, which I've mentioned before, where um, you you actually have to, to be considered a saint in the Catholic Church. There's actually a, a rigorous process, um, including you have to have three miracles, I think it's three miracles, attributed to you after you died. So you got to do miracles even after you're dead in order to be a saint, right? Super Christian. It's not that, you know, you rise from the dead and do them, but, you know, something must happen, and it must be attributable to you somehow, some way, as you're you're doing. I, I know, um, might seem a little bit strange, but you know, there's definitely a sense that a saint, at least in the Catholic Church, is this like high revered thing. Whereas in the Bible, Paul just calls everybody saints. He even calls the Corinthians saints. Which, if you read the Book of Corinthians, they're fairly messed up. They were not like the model Christians, and yet he calls them saints as well because the word saint really just means any person who has been separated from sinful humanity by God and by trusting God, having a righteousness through faith from him, not a righteousness of our own. So you've been set apart. You're different. You're outside of of sinful humanity. Um, And that's every person who's put faith and trust in Jesus um, and in God. So that's what saints means. And it's really a sense here that... uh, that you might think there is a sense in which you are supposed to feel a sense of like unity with like heroes of the faith, with people that for a Gentile audience, you have almost no connection to. Like they literally don't have a connection to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or Moses, or Daniel, and, and, and all the, the prophets and saints of the Old Testament. And yet Paul is saying, you are now buddies with them. You are now neighbors with them. You are now destined for the same community and life as those that you have nothing to do with. It's like um, when it's Olympics time, I, I can be very uh, pro-Korea at that time because it's, you know, being someone of, you know, kind of ethnically Korean and— uh, uh, and yet an uh, American, you know, born and raised, I get to cheer for two teams, you know, like, yeah, Koreans did great. <laughs> I'm like, woohoo, that's, you know, I'm going to share in that somehow. So it, it's sort of like that is, is the Gentiles can now say that um, they have a participation in all the saints, the life of all the saints, a unity and community and, uh, with, with everyone. But it's not just like a shared citizenship. It's also to be family members. He continues on um, that you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, or maybe even households of the members, uh, even members of the household of God. That's That's having a seat at the table, not just a legal right to live in the country. I have a very good friend that I met in high school, and we ended up going to UCI together, and I was over at their house all the time, and uh, his mom, Mama Gita, was everyone's mom, all right, so everyone was welcome there, you know, is, is very much, uh, they're an Indian family, and very much, uh, she just wanted all these young uh, men and women to feel like at home there, but everyone was kind of like, you know, Mama Gita's kids, but I was over there a lot, <laughs> a lot more than the other other kids, and uh, eventually, they just gave me a key to the house, because I would be there when they weren't there sometimes. You know, I'd get there before they got there. And so um, there was a sense of a, a belonging that was communicated in that. I, I, was, I wasn't just like a visitor. I wasn't just someone that they tolerated. When you have a key to the house, that's saying you are a part of this family. Um, you know, my, my, my house is your house. Being a Christian isn't just a formal process of getting your citizenship. And now you have a piece of paper that says you're officially a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. No, when you trust Jesus to forgive forgive your sins, he makes you by his blood, and the Spirit makes you by, by uniting you to Christ, he makes you part of his family, the very household, to share table and eat with our Lord, not just tolerating you, but you have a key. You can come in whenever you want and crash on the couch. Actually, <laughs> they, never, they never went that far. You know, here, you can sleep on this bed. I slept on the couch a lot um, in that house. But I mean, even better, the Lord prepares actually a room for us to dwell in. You are members of the household of God. And that implies, of course, there's an implication there that then we are all family who have put faith in Jesus. We're all a part of that household. And there should be peace in that household because, again, Jesus has died to eliminate any reason for us to have conflict with each other because conflict arises from sin. And so in the household of God, there ought not to be, and one day there will be no uh, no hostility, no anger, no rivalry, no envy, no jealousy. There will be perfect peace. But until then... In our household, in, in our church family, there should likewise be that kind of peace, or at least a striving for it, that kind of hope in conflicts being resolved, um, that sense that we belong to each other, we put each other's needs um, above our own, that this is a family, really, um, that cares for one another whatever your citizenship is, whatever country you came from, if you put your hope in God and not yourself, if you've trusted Jesus to be the only reason you can stand before a holy God, then today we're family. And family shouldn't have you know, conflicts and, and strife between each other, and I, I hope we don't. Now, I want to take just a couple minutes here at the end of this message, obviously we didn 't get all the way to verse twenty two we 're going to save that for um, for next time we 're together um, because it 's kind of big imagery because we 're going to talk about the temple and things so I, I just wanted to save that for another time. but I just want to clarify a few things that were sa- was said last week um, maybe you don 't remember you 've already forgotten, um, but i uh, apparently I made a few controversial Uh, statements, Um, not as bad as some of the controversies that happened during COVID, Um, but I know that if you bring up, you know, Muslims and you bring up uh, LGBTQIA2S plus stuff, that you need to speak clearly, and uh, I fear that I didn't do that as well as I could have. So for those of you who, who shared your encouragements and appreciation, at least for what I was trying to get at, thank you for making those comments. For those who were confused and were willing to ask me questions and figure out where I was coming from, thank you also. Um, and for those of you who might still want to talk or share concerns uh, about what, uh, what I said last week, please reach out. I want to be teachable and listen, and I also want every opportunity to not be a stumbling block to your faith. Especially if there is, I think, probably a misunderstanding. And I, sp- I especially hope you would talk to me before talking about me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know how you guys are. <laughs> <laughs> to be very clear, I am not in favor of teaching children LGBTQIA- LGBTQIA2S plus material, okay? Um, schools are... <laughs> Schools are always going to teach things that I am not in full agreement with, but introducing those kinds of subjects, especially that pertain uh, to sex and identity to kids when they probably need to be focusing on the fundamental blocks of education, like history and logic and and reading and math, um, at at best is a distraction, um, and at worst could be, Traumatizing if the parents haven't talked to their kids about sex and those kinds of sensitive issues. Um, on the flip side of that, of course, I hope that Christian parents are teaching their children not only a biblical worldview, but the kind of respectful, kind, humble, and loving behavior that Paul says and Peter says we should have. That frankly can change the mind of those who don't agree with us. It's actually what we what I said earlier in First Peter chapter two. But you you can know many places where Paul absolutely. In Titus 3. Paul absolutely commends us to live in such a way that evildoers and people who disagree with us can't raise an accusation against us. So I, I hope that we're also teaching our, our children that as well. Um, but uh, in case there is any question about where I stand, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's also true. Uh, understand that I think everybody is wrong. <laughs> Me too. That every person is an awful sinner. No exception. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care what you've done for the Lord lately. Every single one of us needs peace with God and peace with each other. Every single one of us on the face of the planet needs to submit their life to God. Because God made everything and he made you and he made you in his image You, by definition, owe him your life. And it's the height of ego, pride, selfishness for us to think, I can live my life however I want. Doesn't matter what your race or religion or your sexual orientation or any of that stuff is, God wants all of you. And there's no one in this room that can say, unless you're Jesus, That God has no demand on my life. There's nothing I need to sacrifice or do differently because I am perfect. No one can say that. We are all fallen and we all fall short. Jesus is God. He has every right to define what we do with our bodies, what we do with our marriages, what we do with our wallets, what we do with our careers, what we do with our minds, what we do with our time, what we do with our cell phones and computers. God has a right to all of it, and he makes that righteous demand on every person. The totality of your being belongs to him. It does not matter what your, what, what your deal is, where you are, where you came from, or any of that. Only God has a right to demand those things. And if anyone says, no, God doesn't have the right, it's the height of folly and foolishness. Who do you think you are? Some finite being, you've been on the planet at most, you know, 80 years or or 90 years, but the average here is much lower than that. And you're going to say that you know enough in your 10, 12 pound brain to tell God what to do? It's a foolishness. God is God. He has a right to every soul, every life. And another way to say that is God isn't calling Muslims to repent or Mormons or Buddhists or atheists or gay people or greedy people or hateful people or selfish people. God is calling you to repent and every person to repent and to submit everything you are to him. It's not a Christians versus everyone else. The text is clear that we have no shot at peace or unity apart from God. The only thing that can make us unified and have peace is the blood of Christ and the spirit of the Holy Spirit to draw us closer into Christ's likeness and then to each other. Any other trying to do that, let's try to make each other conform through social pressure and political pressure and all these things is backward. The gospel first, the gospel utmost Let people have peace with God. Make sure they understand that message and unity and all those other things will come. But as as long as we're focusing on, I think, um, a a lot of other issues besides the gospel, I I think we're going to be maybe politically and socially effective. But if people do not become citizens of the kingdom, then it's just for a very temporary time that we'll achieve some kind of momentary peace here on earth. The only peace to be found is through Jesus. Now, if you happen to believe in something other than what the Bible says, which is all of you, none of you can sit here and say, oh yes, I fully believe and submit submit my life to everything the Bible says all the time. I'm perfect. So this is for everyone. If you happen to believe something contrary to the Bible, Have a little humility. Have a little compassion on other sinners. Have a little pity to say, you're lost. I am too. I was much lost loster before. But then the Lord saved me. That's why we invited so many people from this community, all different kinds of religions and, and, and cultural backgrounds to come here. Because we're trying to say, every one of you can have peace. If if you are willing to follow the prince of peace and nothing else and if that isn't our message i don't know what we're doing <laughs> is it not the gospel isn't that what jesus told his disciples before he ascended jesus commanded his followers to preach the gospel to all people let us be about that business if i'm still being unclear <laughs> this morning talk to me um, don't talk about me talk to me um but hopefully that's clear. I'm not trying to uh, take any kind of, um, you know, whether you think protesting is the best way to c- to communicate the gospel in, uh, in a loving, kind way. That I'll leave that to you, for you to decide. Um, but again, my comments last week were about Christians who were rallying Muslims to their aid to protest uh, against um, certain kinds of curriculum being taught in, in public schools. So um, strategy-wise, I... I, I I questioned that a little bit. I heard someone say, oh, we need more strong Christian men like this. And there's a clip of a man, uh, I, you know, you know, very wonderfully articulating the problem with uh, perhaps promoting sexualized material to little children. But I didn't know if the guy was Christian or Muslim. But I, it was a Christian saying, we need more, you know, like Christians like this. But by the the speech of it, there's no way to know. I couldn't tell if that was a Christian Muslim. You know why? There was one reference to a Bible verse, but no gospel, no Jesus, no blood. So is that, is that really what Christian men should do, is stand before people and not be clear what the gospel is? So that was a very confusing kind of uh, commendation. What I couldn't tell, I mean, because Muslims can use Bible verses, you know, uh, governors can use Bible verses, right? So that doesn't mean nothing. So you can't tell me, look at this Christian man doing this, and there's no gospel. I can't tell. If he's Muslim, he could have been Buddhist, he could have been atheist, just making a good point about something. That's dangerous. That's a dangerous game to play. Um, so if you have any more questions about that, <laughs> boy, I, I thought I was trying to clarify something today, but if I didn't, <laughs> um, you you come and talk to me about that, all right? Uh, and, and you find out exactly where I stand. But I I hope that's at least clear enough where my heart is. So even if you don't understand, at least give me the, the grace to say, well, I think he's trying to put the gospel first. That, yes, go with that. All right, in, enough. Let me pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I, boy, I do need grace. And um, I know that there are areas in my life... Um, That are not submitted to you. I mean, I I can't claim to be a perfect person. I can't even say today that I've done a a very good job of being a perfect person. Um, And if that's the requirement, then who could stand before holy God? It's by grace. It's by the gospel. It's to the peace made through Jesus and the access uh, of the, the, the Spirit provides by working in my heart that that I can be anything worthwhile to you or to anyone else. So that's just what I pray for me. It's what I pray for everyone in this room has put their faith in Jesus. It's what I pray for those who haven't put their faith in Jesus, that they would come to know that you have laid this claim. Every life is owed to you, and it should be um, judged and punished. But instead, Lord, you show grace and mercy in Christ. So help us to be about that. Thank you, Lord, for your love your patience and your long-suffering towards me and uh, towards all sinners. May the gospel be on our lips and in our heart every day, and that we do good works that adorn that glorious good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.